your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Uh, today we're going to talk about a, a difficult but a very important topic, uh, and that is dying. Uh, it's no secret that cancer can often be a terminal illness. Uh, in fact, most of us have lost or know someone who has lost a loved one uh, to the disease. In this episode, we will discuss ways to cope with end-of-life issues and offer tips on how you can enrich a person's life, uh, even when he or she is dying, uh, as well as your own life if you are a caregiver. But before we begin, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. A recent study suggests that no matter how hormone replacement therapy is given, it increases the risk of ovarian cancer. Hormone replacement therapy, consisting of estrogen, progesterone, or both, and used to relieve the symptoms of menopause, has been linked to breast cancer and could now be tied to an increased risk in ovarian cancer. Researchers studied more than 900,000 women who were 50 to 79 years of age from 1995 to 2005. None of them had tumors that grew in response to hormones, and none had their ovaries removed during a hysterectomy or for other reasons. During the study's follow-up period, doctors found more than 3,000 ovarian tumors. Women who were currently using hormones were almost 40% more likely to develop such tumors. The link between hormone therapy and ovarian cancer was apparent regardless of the type of hormone used or how long they were used. Researchers stated that the risk of ovarian cancer is one of several factors to take into account when assessing the risk and benefit of hormone use. In other news, men who drink heavily may be raising their risk of developing prostate cancer. The study also found the drug finasteride, which can help lower a man's risk of the disease, appears unable to undo the damage of heavy drinking. The findings come from a clinical trial of nearly 11,000 men looking at whether finasteride lowered the risk of prostate cancer over seven years. 2,219 were diagnosed with prostate cancer, and 8,791 of them remained cancer-free throughout the study. The researchers found that the men who drank heavily were twice as likely as non-drinkers to develop aggressive prostate tumors. The risk was seen in both men who received finasteride and those given a placebo. In addition, when it came to less aggressive, slower-growing prostate tumors, finasteride cut non-drinkers and moderate drinkers' risk by 43%. The drug did nothing, however, for heavier drinkers. While heavy drinking may need to be added to the short list of prostate cancer factors, additional studies need to be done to confirm the findings. While it is encouraging to hear that there are over 12 million cancer survivors living in the U.S. today, this statistic doesn't erase the fact that uh, 500,000 people will still die from the disease this year alone. Uh, So what should you do if you or a loved one has stopped treatment or are now facing 
some of these end-of-life issues. Can you still maintain uh, a rich quality of life up until the, uh, the very end? In this episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, we're here to tell you that, yes, it, it is possible, uh, and to offer you advice on how to accomplish this. We are joined today by two wonderful guests who are here to share their stories and offer some practical information if you or a loved one has terminal cancer. Uh, first, we have Guy Pappenhausen. Guy is a former caregiver to his wife, Carol, who died from cancer in May of 2008. Guy is also a faithful participant at our wellness community in East Tennessee. Uh, first, uh, Guy, I want to express my uh, condolences to you uh, for your loss. Uh, we're so grateful to have you here with us today to share such a personal uh, experience uh, with our listeners. So thank you and welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. We're also here with Sarah Goldberger. Sarah is Senior Director of Programs at the Wellness Community. Sarah's worked in the field of psychosocial oncology for the past 19 years. She began her social work career at Calvary Hospital in New York, which is an acute care hospital for terminally ill cancer patients. I want to mention today uh, some exciting news that as of July 1st, the Wellness Community and Gilda's Club uh, have joined forces become the largest cancer support organization in the U.S., and Sarah comes to us from uh, Gilda's Club and has a long, rich history uh, there, and we are so excited that our two organizations have joined together, and for our listeners, you'll certainly hear more about that, and if you go to our website at uh, thewellnesscommunity.org, you can see up a, a statement that gives you some more information about this wonderful uh, union of our two organizations. So, Sarah, I'm so pleased uh, that we're now working together, and I'm so pleased to have you on the show today. I am delighted to be here and delighted to be part of the wellness community, Kim. Great. So um, I, I want to uh, start with you, Guy, because um, we certainly have a lot of territory we want to cover today. Um, uh, Guy, why don't you get us started by telling us about your family's uh, cancer experience? When was your wife, Carol, first uh, diagnosed with cancer? Well, as she was in the last two, uh, two and a half years of her life, diagnosed, but diagnosed over and over again, it seemed, uh, she had three primary cancers, um, three, that is, separate cancers, <clears throat> that one that traveled and stopped at various places in the body, and I didn't know in my ignorance, nor did my wife, that that kind of thing happened. The last surgeon that treated her said ah, he'd had people with four or five <laughs> cancers mm-hmm. over a brief period of time like that. Yeah. That is primary cancers that hadn't, um, that as opposed to secondary, which was a departure from what I always understand. You know, we we think of our our, um, relatives who have died, my father-in-law from lung cancer. It was lung cancer. It traveled to the brain, but it was lung cancer. And um, my grandmother, breast cancer, uh, died of that. These were years ago. And and so in my generation, I grew up with the thought that that, did you in? I mean, that was an automatic thing. And over the years, I've thought that less and less. But nevertheless, deep down, is <laughs> that sense that uh, that once you get it, you've got it. Well, in this case, uh, my wife went in, Carol went in for a routine colonoscopy mm-hmm. at the age of, I think she was 69. Mm-hmm. She died at 72. And uh, indeed, there were polyps, um, cancerous polyps revealed after uh, an examination uh, of what had been removed, and um, and then um, as a part of that routine colonoscopy, she had a chest X-ray. I don't know how common that is in hospitals. I suppose it's very common now. And we found out she had lung cancer. Um, the chest X-ray revealed a cloudiness, and then uh, uh, I don't know, it was a CT or a PET scan revealed lung cancer. Mm. 
she had uh, the, col- uh, the 12 inches of her colon removed, uh, and then uh, we were faced with uh, the surgery on, on her lung, and that was done over at Vanderbilt. We searched all about, <laughs> trying to find somebody who could do it and give us confidence that it would be done well, and we think we found him, and we still, I still do, and so did my wife afterwards, but um, uh, the upper lobe of her right uh, lung was removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then uh, there was a follow-up, uh, I remember six months or so, to see if there had been uh, a reoccurrence of the lung cancer. We went in, Carol and I, to the doctor, <laughs> And we're told, indeed, there's evidence there. There's more lung cancer that's grown up since the surgery. And, uh, but it's not something you're likely to be able to treat um, with chemotherapy or radiation. It's the type of cell that doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, respond. Respond. Yeah. yeah. Respond. And surgery was not advised. Uh, but then... Uh, I guess we all took a breath at that before he went on and said, also on the scan, you lit up, referring to my wife, you lit up in the abdomen. Mm. Um, and uh, so then that was uh, discovered or, uh, to be uh, uterine cancer, mm. and that's what she died of. Wow, wow. Mm. And, so I, was, and I know she died, uh, Guy, um, a little more than a year ago, in May of 2008. Right. And and I also understand that the, there was a point where Carol decided that she did not want uh, chemotherapy, that she wanted to forego a treatment. Was this her personal decision, or did you guys just make that decision together, or what was it that was like? A, it was her personal decision. She had said often on, and infrequently through the years, well before she had cancer, that she didn't want any part of chemotherapy or radiation. And I would always stand silent, never saying one thing or the other. Uh, but I always knew it was in her head because she let me know. Uh, finally, though, uh, there was a point where she um, she was asked whether she wanted a chemotherapy after the after she had a hysterectomy as a result of the discovery of the u- uterine cancer, um, and um, she said just what I thought she'd say: uh, no. Uh, she was given a prognosis mm-hmm. if she did have the chemotherapy. Uh, that is a life expectancy prognosis, and uh, with and without. And uh, it wasn't from this surgeon <laughs> strikingly different. In any case, that's what she said. No. She said no. Sarah, why is it important uh, to, for somebody to really think about and make his or her own decisions when dealing with a with a serious illness? Uh, it sounds like Carol was pretty firm and she knew what she wanted. But uh, but uh, who, Carol, Sarah, who who uh, who should people make these wishes known to, and how do they sort of arrive at the, the, that decision? Uh, great question, Kim. Um, and I think that um, Guy's story really illustrates this point beautifully. Is that um, when people have the opportunity to think about these things and talk about them prior to an actual decision, you know, a point in time where they need to make a decision. It's just easier on everybody all around. Um, People need to think about these things and and come to their own decisions because everybody, every individual, you, me, Guy, Carol, all have different um, beliefs and values and goals in our lives. And we want really, I think, those beliefs, values, and goals to be taken into account 
when we as individuals are making decisions about treatment. Um, Your second question about who should know is I would say everybody should know your decisions. Um, It makes it much easier. So when I say everybody, I mean your your family, um, anyone who you consider to be part of your family, um, so that in a case like guys, um, you know, I know you mentioned the children, um, it, they know that these were your wife's decisions. Um, and while people may not always like them because their police values and um, goals in life may be different, they at least can respect that those are choices that we as individuals make. Um, the other people that obviously should know about this is your healthcare team. Um, so that um, in in times of stress or you know emergency um, admissions to hospitals and things, they are also aware of what um, kinds of decisions you want made. So you so you should really share that pretty widely. Talk to your family. Talk to your medical team. Sure. Uh, make sure make sure folks are really well aware of your of your wishes, Sarah. Yes, um, I used to say to people all the time: talk early, talk often. Talk early, talk often, be open, yeah, yeah, communicate. Yeah, and I guess yeah. you also, Sarah, we're about to go to a break in a, in, a, in a couple seconds, but I guess it's also, you also have to leave, leave folks open to the possibility that they can change their minds. Oh, absolutely. Um, that just because you felt one way on, you know, a certain day does not necessarily mean that you want to close those doors forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and people is, do change their minds all yeah. the time. And I think you have to you have to make sure you're giving people room, you know, room, room to do that. Um, yep. This is frankly speaking about cancer. Uh, we are having a, a really intense uh, discussion today about living with dying and uh, dealing with terminal illness. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. 
high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking about how to maintain uh, a good and enriching life even when you or a loved one is terminally ill. We're here with Guy Pappenhausen, a former caregiver to his wife, Carol, and a participant at the Wellness Community of East Tennessee, and Sarah Goldberger, Senior Director of Program at the Wellness Community. Um, we were talking before the break, Guy, about uh, how Carol was pretty clear about her decision of not wanting treatment um, when, uh, when there was evidence of quite a bit of cancer. Um, in her body. Um, Guy, you mentioned you have two uh, adult children, Chris and Karen. Was it difficult to tell them that Carol declined chemotherapy? What, what was that conversation like? How did that happen? I don't think it was difficult at all, and there are reasons for it, I think, that aren't all that usual, but uh, directly to answer your question, uh, my daughter was with me when in the doctor's office, uh, my daughter who lives nearby, and so she heard all uh, that the doctor had to say, and she knew her mother and her mother's attitudes about chemotherapy and um, and had been through all this anyway. She had been through all the surgeries, gone to the hospital, slept in the bed at Vanderbilt, uh, the uncomfortable bed by, by her mother's bed while she was having the surgeries. Um, Who's, I have no, I'm not sure how they feel. I never heard anything but harmony from either of them. I never heard a, a moment of, oh, Dad, you you got to talk her into something else. You, because I didn't. And, and, and I, I agreed with... So everybody was but, really at peace with it pretty early on. Absolutely, yes. But I, I, I would like to add something that I think is important yes. in, in her case. Um, Carol didn't have the same will to live that I think perhaps as average, whatever that is. Uh-huh. Uh, she was clinically depressed and had been under psychiatric care for years. Mm-hmm. And without going into much or almost no detail, she had attempted suicide and was a breath away years ago, 40, 35 years ago, of, of succeeding. And I think she had a death wish, was, wish was, which is a little stronger maybe or a lot stronger than the average person's. Mm-hmm. And this seemed... I think, and this is speculation on my part, but yeah. it did affect the way I reacted when she said, I don't want radiology yeah. uh, or, or, or chemotherapy or anything afterwards, uh, that she wanted to get out. I, and yeah. this was a way out, um, not wholly and completely, yeah. uh, but it was important for her. She was getting out now. She was tired. She'd been very bad the last four or five years uh, emotionally uh, before the disease itself. So um, when I hear people say, and I've heard them uh, say often, uh, oh, you didn't have chemotherapy, uh, or you didn't do any of that, I said, no, 
I don't say anything after that, but I'm telling you now yeah. <laughs> that 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 had to influence all of our feelings about Carol's mm-hmm. decision not to do anything more. Pretty intense, Sarah. Pretty intense emotions there. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's important to add in here that you know. Screening um, for depression is incredibly important with people who are at the end of life because, um, you know, people who have a history of depression, certainly, but those who may be depressed because they've gotten, um, you know, to a point where treatment is no longer possible and they're accepting that they um, may be terminally ill um, and that that depression could be treated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And should be treated. And so, but but, uh, have you heard that before? Sarah was someone who's been depressed for so long that it may be easier for them to accept it? Um, I think that's certainly possible. Um, You know, I think on the other side, you hear people who will say that they have, you know, lived wonderful lives. They've accomplished, you know, many things. And I think we'll um, talk a little bit about hope later on, I I hope. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And so they are more at peace with it, I think. You know, it comes in all different forms, and I guess what I would say simply to answer that question, Kim, is that um, people die the way they live their lives. Mm -hmm. So people who were fighters all their life um, are going to most probably, you know, be fighters right up through the end, and people who were, you know, joyous and happy are going to die in that that same way, and I think um, Guy's given us an example of how that applies to in his family. I think I think you're so right. I really do. I, um, uh, you know, I I saw some little film on Sarah Fawcett Majors recently. I think it was on yes. television. Yes. Um, it was all fight, 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 fight. Well, there wasn't really a battle in my house. <laughs> mm-hmm. We didn't use the term. Um, we uh, it, it just. It, Carol was, I guess you'd say, passive and uh, passive about her disease. Uh, Not totally so, Uh, but she really took her. uh, She 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 took her. uh, She took their advice from me and and uh, chiefly, Uh, she did what I asked her to do, which was based on what I thought was best. And she never argued. Never, never, uh, never did. It was. There was a kind of smoothness in that way emotionally uh, through all those all that time. Uh, uh, strangely enough, well, I think but, it just does go to show that it is really different for every person, and it's different in, in different in every home, and it's different in every family. There is no one size fits all to how this happens. And Kim, that. that's exactly why it's so important to talk about it with your family, yeah. because yeah. it is a different experience for every individual and for every family. So go go into that a little more, Sarah. Why is that communication piece so important for patients, for caregivers, for families who are facing these issues? Well, I think, you know, we're, we're not just talking here about medical decisions anymore. We're talking about, you know, people's end-of-life experience, the whole experience that, that um, individuals and families have. And, you know, some people will um, readily acknowledge that it is the end of their life and they'll want to do some, you know, life review maybe with family, maybe there are things that they still do want to accomplish. And I think, you know, it's it's about, for many people, it's about living while they're dying, whereas for other people, um, it's more of a, um, a, a sort of leaving behind of their lives. So they want to, um, you know, those are the kind of people who may become more isolated and want to withdraw a little bit more, um, whereas somebody else in a different situation may feel like, 
gee, yes, I'm, I'm dying, but I still have things to learn and I want to, um, you know, create a scrapbook or knit a scarf for my grandchild or, or things like that. And again, it's a very individual experience, but we as the family and friends are never going to know unless we have these conversations. And does, Sarah, do you think that when, when folks do uh, have a, a terminal illness, do you think that the whole measure of time changes? I mean, does the, your, your sense of time change? And also you, you mentioned uh, hope and, and uh, the importance of finding uh, hope in the face of a, of, a, of a terminal illness. Can you talk about those things? Um, sure. I, I think time does change. It, it either, um, and I've heard this, you know, through my work, um, with people who were dying in their families, but also from, you know, personal experience with people I've known that have died, friends and family, is that time both speeds up and slows down at the same time. And it's an odd thing, but I think um, those of you who are listening and, and Guy and Kim, I know you've had some experience as well, can understand what I mean about that. Yeah. But then sometimes it can take an incredibly, you know, things seem to take a very long time, but other times it, it, it's so quick. Yeah. And what about hope, Sarah? Yeah, um, such an interesting concept. And, uh, again, hope is a very personal um, thing for every individual. And, uh, again, I go back to their beliefs and their values and their goals in life. Um, but I think it's important always to have hope for something. And I, I think it's also important that hope, that you recognize that hope changes over time. So when someone gets an initial diagnosis of cancer, Probably everyone in that you know circle is hopeful that the cancer will be cured, um, and sometimes when that's not an option, what you hope for is that you know you will live long enough to see you know a grandchild um, born or you know a, a daughter married or a, a spouse um, you know promoted and and flourish in their new position. So, and and further on, it can be you know I hope today is a pain-free day. Yeah. Or, yeah. or I hope that, um, you know, today my family member will be able to communicate with me. Yeah. You know, that's so much on the mark with my experience, uh, in spite of all the differences that <laughs> are experienced by people with cancer and their families. That's so true. The hope, hope early and, and late even, uh, and then maybe the point at which what you do, to almost repeat what you're saying, is, Hope that uh, certainly on the part of Carol that she wasn't going to hurt, yeah. uh, and uh, and on my part too, of course, that she wouldn't hurt. That things would go as easily as they could. And and guy, did your yours and Carol's priorities change during uh, during this period of time? I mean, did you get, have a, a a different sense of time and how time was passing? Did you did you look at things differently? Focus on on the smaller things in life, or um, during this experience? A, a, a tough question about priorities, but you know, I, I, I'm not sure there are any major uh, changes. Uh, life changed, of course. Yeah. Uh, the last months when she was really not housebound, but um, oh, there were simple pleasures. I, uh, I discovered Dove bars late in life, and uh, <laughs> they were on sale at Kroger, and I would never buy them. I always bought those cheap waxy things that chocolate-flavored candles more than anything else. But I thought, Dove bars, they sound good. And I brought them home, and, and then we just indulged ourselves for, oh, a few months through the summer at least before. 
Mm. Uh, she liked the uh, dark chocolate, and I liked the <clears throat> milk with the milk chocolate with the almonds. And and there were times I would watch. I don't know if there's a change in priorities, but I'd rarely seen the cat on her lap. Uh, but he was there one day when I passed. Uh, Carol sitting on a chair in the living room, and just looking, looking good with the hand on the cat, which was on her lap. And 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 then a, a simple thing like a bath became so important when it was difficult mm-hmm. to do for her. Um, and combing her hair out on the deck, I, I looked out one time, I looked at her, I came in the bedroom, and she was out on the bedroom deck combing her hair in the sunlight. It was May, and it was beautiful weather, uh, and she was looking towards the mountains. And I just imagined, because she didn't look toward the mountains, I, I thought <laughs> that often she, um, but I, I imagined it was the case that she, was taking pleasure, and I remember with what pleasure I had uh, seeing her combing her hair in that sunlight, looking out toward the mountains. And and then later I combed her hair, which I'd never done in 50 years of marriage. Mm -hmm. She asked me to, and uh, it was tangled. She was often in bed and tangled more that way or for that reason. And so that was was a change that became important (laughs) uh, to do something like that, to brush her hair. Um, and even to learn how, I had to, because she ouched a lot at the beginning. Yeah, after it's, it is ama- it's amazing for you to share that. I, I mean, after all those years of marriage, as you said, for those those things to become important and those small changes that that will be things that that uh, you know that uh, that you will remember uh, remember about Carol. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Um, we're talking about uh, living with dying uh, today. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but, but what? But, but your butt, your buttocks, your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or 
or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. It's hard to know what to do when a loved one has cancer, let alone when he or she is terminally ill. Uh, Today we're discussing how you can manage end-of-life issues and still feel a sense of fulfillment in life even when you or a loved one has a limited amount of time left. We're here with Sarah Goldberger, who's Senior Director of Program at the Wellness Community, and Guy Pappenhausen, who is a former caregiver to his wife, Carol, and a participant uh, at the Wellness Community of East Tennessee. And really, uh, Guy, your sharing with us today is uh, really quite... uh, uh, quite amazing, um, I know, touching uh, and inspiring to uh, certainly to me and to um, to all of our listeners today. Um, Sarah, I want to talk a little bit about how to cope with uh, feelings of isolation, which is something we hear about a lot in end-of-life issues. Sometimes a person dying from cancer really withdraws uh, from family and friends, and and um, uh, and you know that really affects the whole uh, whole circle around them. And how how can a caregiver? Uh, best support someone who is feeling uh, withdrawn, or how can a patient really address some of those issues? Sure. Um, great question, Kim. Um, I, I think there are two things. One is that, you know, we talked a little bit about um, depression before and how that can impact someone who's dying. So I would say screening for that and treating it if it's appropriate. Um, but there are some people who do naturally withdraw, and I think... Um, you know, a couple of different things can be going on. One is that um, I've heard it said, and I've seen it enough to believe it's true, is that sometimes for people with very, very strong connections um, to family and friends, um, withdrawing, particularly at the very end of life when they're actively dying, is something that they actually need to do to be able to die. Um, and if you think about it, um, in our own lives, you know, the people that we're attached to, that how can we leave them? Um, and if we maintain those sort of deep connections ongoing, maybe it becomes physically hard to leave them. Um, and I, I've seen it happen enough that it, it's a question, um, in my mind, it could possibly be true. Um, in addition to that, I think that um, sometimes communication breaks down and, and, and what a uh, person who is dying might be thinking and saying um, doesn't really jive with what a family and friends are, are repeating back to them. So let me give you an example. So uh, somebody might say, um, I, I don't think I'm going to make it. And a family member will say, oh, come on, Mama, don't talk like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that will stop the conversation. I mean, if it were me, I think, or you, you could understand that, like, okay, I'm not going there again. I'm going to 
you know, talk about something else. But if enough people don't respond to you, um, you know, respond back to that in a way that's appropriate, you could see that somebody could become withdrawn. Because nobody's really acknowledging what they're really feeling. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The and family's yeah. in denial themselves. Well, or denial, or just, it, I, I'm not saying these are easy conversations to have. They are very challenging and very difficult, um, but the rewards are there um, for any of us who have had that opportunity to stay connected um, and, and, and to really be with that person through the dying process is, is amazing and um, wonderful for everybody. Yeah, it um, seems I, like sometimes people have this automatic feeling or need to be, feel like they need to be upbeat. Yeah, but sometimes yeah. that's not what the what the person needs. Yeah, or Kim, honestly, the the other can be true too. There are many people who are in denial of what's happening right up until the moment that they do die. Yeah. And so, you know, another example would be um, someone who says, "I'm gonna beat this," um, and family or friends say, "Oh, come on, you know, you know what the doctors have said." Yeah. Um, you know, that can be equally isolating. I think the message that here is that. You want to try and match as closely as you can comfortably um, what it is that the the patient is, is saying to you. Yeah, yeah. Guy, I know you were uh, uh, a hospice volunteer for 15 years before Carol was diagnosed with cancer, and I know that yes. Carol did, did die in hospice. Yes, um, that's kind of ironic, I guess, but how, how did that experience help you in, in caring for Carol during those final months? I can't say how exactly, but I know it did. I, it was all familiar. It yeah. was, it was the visits twice a week by the nurse. You know, I'd seen all this. I'd been at people's homes. Yeah. All this. I'd seen. There were no surprises. Besides, I had extraordinary confidence in hospice, having been with with two of them, two different ones, um, two two different states, and um, I, I, as it happened. Uh, we didn't get hospice as soon as we should have, uh, which is what I've always heard. <laughs> yeah. Within hospice movement, they, and the nurses will say and others will say, oh, you know, we so often get them so late, they're, uh, they're gone within a week of the time they sign up. Well, we, we had hospice for a, a, a good bit, but it would have been better had we signed on earlier uh, because she never really got her pain under control altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it was controlled, not as much as it, it would have been had she signed a little earlier, because there's a progression. Uh, you know, the drugs start uh, generally not so substantial and, and tough, and they go on up to something stronger and stronger until uh, control is achieved, which it usually is. But uh, the, so that, that was a, some regret, but uh, it was it had nothing to do with, um, I mean, I, I knew to get her in. Um, she had a, a pain in her leg, and she thought it was a sciatic nerve problem yeah. she'd had a couple years before. And she sort of convinced me, I guess, and um, it stayed on and came and stayed on. And finally, it, it dawned on us, <laughs> or it dawned on me anyway, let's get to the doctor. This is probably... Your, your uterine cancer after the hysterectomy she had to remove yeah. the uterus, et cetera. Well, that's why we waited as long as we did. We were faked out by a, by a problem that mimicked uh, the cancer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, Guy, I, I know, uh, you know, again, it's just amazing to hear you sharing, uh, to hear you share all this with us today. And 
Um, you know, obviously, you, we can hear how much you you cared about uh, Carol and com- committed yourself to taking care of her. Um, but did you ever experience any moments of uh, uh, of, uh, of frustration? Did you ever get uh, uh, impatient or lose your temper through all of this? I did. And I try not to think of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, twice. Um, I rem- twice I remember. Um, and uh, they were simple things. And your listeners might be interested in, in, in them. Um, they both occurred in the bathroom once when Carol had an appointment with her doctor. And she was to take a bath bef- I mean, she, before she went. Uh, well, that was a project at the time, and I helped her, and uh, she couldn't seem to get into the bathtub. She couldn't get near the bathtub. She was in the walk-in closet right by the bathroom, and she dithered, and I had no idea uh, how far her mind had deteriorated as a result of her cancer. I, I, I was clueless, and I became impatient because we were going to be late at this rate, and she just was opening drawers and closing them and looking in and at her clothes, and and until I said, uh, "Would uh, not very not, well." This is the tone of voice I said it in. Would you please get in the tub? For which I pay a price even now. Um, uh, and, and then another time, similarly, this time she was going to her therapist. Uh, and uh, appointment. So she all ha- she, all she had to do then was get dressed, and she couldn't. She couldn't decide on clothes. She just sort of looked befuddled and, and uh, confused at her clothes racks. And I didn't. I should have known by now. It was the second time. I said, "Would you please get dressed?" <laughs> her reaction was, well, "I didn't. There didn't seem to be one. There must have been, but." She, uh, she didn't say anything, and she did take the bath, and she get, did get dressed, and we did get to the places we needed to get to. Yeah. But it was all the other inappropriate on my part, and I felt terrible. <laughs> Sarah, is oh, that... Oh, yes, I was yeah, frustrated. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Sarah, is that a normal reaction for a caregiver to get frustrated? And, I mean, boy, I can oh, imagine you just get exhausted, and you just, you know, you're just trying so hard and devoting your whole self. Yeah, yeah, um, it is totally normal. And what I think is um, remarkable, Guy, is that it only happened two times. Yeah. Um, and well, yet that's all your I comment remember. was, <laughs> yeah, um, and, and it still sounds like you really remember those times very clearly and feel terribly about them. Um, but it is completely normal. Um, caregivers are so stressed and, um, you know, really don't take care of themselves, um, which they some people will see as being selfish. How can I think about myself? Um, but it is critically important that you, um, as caregivers and family members and friends, take care of yourselves. Um, the, the metaphor I like to use is that um, the patient is almost like a flower in a garden, and the caregivers are, are like a watering can, and they're watering the flower so that the flower can you know, survive and, and, and even grow and blossom. Um, but if the watering can dries up, what will happen to the flower? Um, So it's important that the watering can or the family member or the caregiver is getting some, you know, some replenishment for themselves from a larger source, and that can take, you know, many different forms, but it's it's really important um, that people who are in that role as caregivers take some time and do something that really nourishes them. Yeah. 
it's it's critical. It's the hardest thing for them to do, but it's so important. Right, um, right. And I think that I know uh, certainly the wellness community. We uh, you know have been serving caregivers for uh, our 27 years, and yeah. um, we're very committed to that idea of of uh, really caring for the caregiver and the idea that we know that caregivers oftentimes do not take time for themselves and we try to try to tell them look this is this is not we're, this is not just going to be good for you but this is going to be the best way that you can provide the best care and support uh, yes. uh to your loved yes, if one you can, if you can persuade them that it's good for the patient then then they'll do it then they'll do then, it we're going to we're going to take a quick break um yeah. frankly speaking about cancer we're talking about living with dying today and we will be right back A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, today, we're joined by Guy Pappenhausen, a former caregiver to his wife, uh, Carol, who died from cancer in 2008. Uh, and our participant at our wellness community of East Tennessee, and Sarah Goldberger, who's Senior Director of Programs at the Wellness Community and who comes to us uh, uh, from Gilda's Club. I'll say again that uh, as of July 1st of this year, the wellness community and Gilda's Club have now joined forces uh, to become the largest cancer support organization in the U.S., and we're really uh, pleased by that and pleased to have uh, Sarah uh, as a, a part of our wonderful clinical team um, Guy, uh, very close to the end of Carol's life, we talked about this a little bit. She was moved uh, into she was moved from home into residential hospice, and we know you had hospice coming into your home, but then uh, she was moved into residential hospice. How did you guys make this decision, and do you think you made it at the right time? 
um, easy answer to the second part. I think we made it at the right time. Um, the first part, um, I had been... Uh, to a local hospice that was dedicated just for that, a building for that. It was built about 10 years ago in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I live, um, and was so impressed by it that I came home and told Carol, <laughs> what a place. And she said, though she never visited it, I offered to take her there. She said, that's where I want to go. Um, and I had been indoctrinated for so many years in hospice that most patients want to die at home, that it was a little bit of a surprise um, because that's where I was with hospice patients. They were dying at home. There weren't the facilities to do otherwise. Oh, occasionally there would be some hospital room at a large hospital dedicated to hospice patients. So um, she was ready. Before, I mean, she had said... She said that very early. She said, I don't want... I, I, and the reason was, she said, I, I don't want you to bother with me. I don't want... I don't. And, and she did manage to keep... Uh, it, worked, it worked well. She kept her dignity. She, she didn't make messes of any sort. Um, it was good. And when finally she couldn't... And she fell and she couldn't get up. Yeah. And I couldn't get her up. Um, and the next morning... I called the residential hospice in town, and that afternoon I took her there. She walked in, she was a little wobbly, and six days later she died. Mm. Six days later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. With, with, uh, with wonderful care, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sarah, why, why is comfort such an important issue in this, in this situation? How can somebody really determine if residential hospice or home hospice care is, is right for you, right for your loved one? Um, how do you start to think about that? Well, sure. I, and I think it's important to keep in mind that at, at the end of life, we think we're talking about physical, emotional, and spiritual comfort, um, all of those issues, which maybe aren't as important, you know, during the treatment phase of someone's illness. And I think it is through hospice and palliative care um, that they do pay attention to all the elements of what comfort means to anybody. And it can be as simple as, you know, I'm, I'm remembering, Guy, what you were saying about um, brushing your wife's hair out on the deck looking at the mountains. Um, so it's it's not just about the relief of physical pain, and I think that sometimes um, the hospice programs and the palliative care programs do a fabulous job with that. Um, people don't have to die in pain, and they don't have to suffer tremendously um, while they're dying. And I think people... Um, don't always know that that you should ask for that, and it is, um, you know, the the sometimes when it's possible for people to die at home, that is their wish, and they feel most comfortable in their own bed and familiar surroundings. Um, I think I most think of them do. The, the question most of, of them probably do, don't you think, Sarah? Wish to die at home. Um, I think many people do. I think sometimes it's not possible. Their medical needs um, oh, of course, of really course, make yeah. that challenging. And I think there are people who specifically do not want to die at home because maybe they have small children and they don't want the children to have that memory. Um, so, again, I think it's important to have these conversations early um, about the kinds of care you want um, throughout your life cycle. You know, if you're a young family, it's still important um, to have to, to know what um, 
what kind of care you would want should something happen to you. You know, we're we're um, uh, getting towards the end of our uh, end of our show, and um, I'd love to ask uh, each of you what piece of advice uh, you would give to someone uh, who has terminal cancer or who is caring uh, for a loved one who is. Uh, terminally ill. Like, Guy, I want to start with you. Um, you know, what, what advice would you give uh, to, to, to patients, to caregivers who are uh, in this situation? I, I, I do have one, um, but it's for the caregiver after the death of the, the loved one. Um, it, 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 after my wife died, um, times were tough, as anyone could imagine. Yeah. And I, after some months, I called um, uh, my hospice, the one I volunteer for, and asked, do you have a bereavement group? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I told, well, I do, but it's not around for a while. I mean, I'm, it's coming up. We have them periodically, and, and I wanted something then. And the woman who was in charge of the bereavement group uh, of my hospice recommended the wellness community, which I had never heard of, mm-hmm. Um, and that they had a group. Well, I started, I think it was about last September, going there on Thursday nights for two hours. And, it, and, I, and I'm going tonight. I'm going in two hours or something like that. Um, it's, uh, it's something to consider because I don't think most people go to such groups, although there are any number of them in our community. Uh, they're not all the same. You might find one that's good for you. and This one is miraculous. I have gotten so much help and comfort. It's, uh, it's the single best thing I've done um, and the single um, best way to feeling better uh, as time goes by. Time and the bereavement group, and of course my family, um, have been the most important things. Mm-hmm. And I think people should consider bereavement groups. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, Sarah, what advice would you give to folks? Uh, I I think it's very simple. I think the title of this um, conversation we've been having is Living with Dying, and I would just remind people that even when dying, you can still live. Um, And and to not lose hope and recognize that hope, what you hope for, will change over time. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been uh, quite an amazing conversation today. And uh, I want to thank both of you for, for, for sharing and for, for being with us, and, and Guy especially for sharing your personal um, experiences. And I think you've been a real inspiration to, to, uh, to all of us today. Um, yep. I, I, uh, I want to share a wonderful quote with you. It's, um, it's by a philosopher named uh, Henry Nguyen who wrote, uh, when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means the most to us, we often find that it is those who instead of giving advice, uh, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. Uh, The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face us with the reality of our powerlessness, that is a friend who cares. Um, That quote really seems very relevant uh, uh, to our conversation today. Um, uh, just a couple things that I want to add, uh, again, as we get towards the end of our show. Um, uh, we uh, have a, 
have a Twitter account for our show and uh, would love to invite our listeners to follow us on Twitter. Uh, our, Twitter is, uh, our Twitter site is FSA Cancer, um, and so we'd love for folks to get on there and share their uh, thoughts and reactions um, uh, with us on our Twitter account, so please join us and, and uh, give us your feedback. Um, we uh, have a wonderful website called www.thewellnesscommunity.org, um, and uh, there's a lot of great information on their education. There's also a link to uh, all of our wellness communities and Gildas Clubs uh, across the country. As I mentioned, on July 1st, the Wellness Community and Gildas Club joined forces to become one um, organization, now the largest cancer support organization in the U.S. So if you visit www.thewellnesscommunity.org, um, you can find where we now have nearly 50 centers across the country uh, where we're providing support and education and um, doing bereavement groups like the group that Guy participated in in uh, uh, East Tennessee. We do uh, nutrition. We do exercise. All of the programs and services at the Wellness Community and Gildas Club are free uh, for all people who've been touched by, uh, touched by cancer. So we would really encourage you to visit that site um, and find a wellness community. We also have, if you don't have a wellness community near you, we have a wonderful online community there that you will find as well where you can sign up for, uh, for support groups or even set up your own uh, homepage um, on our site. You can also call us toll-free at 888-793-WELL, W-E-L-L. Um, uh, we, we uh, uh, frankly speaking about cancer airs every Tuesday on Voice America. We have a whole range of topics and uh, wonderful guests. Um, I want to dedicate today's show to everyone who is caring for someone who's terminally ill, uh, whether you are a family member, a friend, a healthcare professional. The work you do is uh, really uh, invaluable. And on behalf of everyone uh, affected by cancer, I'd like to thank you. Also, want to thank our guest today, Guy uh, Pappenhausen. Um, who was really so forthcoming and wonderful and sharing his story today, and Sarah Goldberger, a senior director program at the Wellness Community. Until next time on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. 